reader, I'm Cindy Burnett. Welcome to my award-winning podcast, Thoughts from a Page, which is a member of the Evergreen Podcasts Network. On the show, I chat with authors whose books I have enjoyed about their new releases, and I give you a peek behind the curtain of the publishing industry with my behind-the-scenes series. With so many books coming out weekly, it can be hard to decide what to read, so I find the best ones and share them with you. If you're looking for a community of readers, bonus content, and a chance to read books before they hit the shelves, I hope you'll consider joining my Patreon group, which is filled with a wonderful bunch of book lovers. The link to join is in the show notes. Do you love to be in the know about upcoming books? Kelly Hooker of At Kelly Hook Reads Books and I do too. We couldn't find a comprehensive list of titles all in one place, so we made one ourselves, and now we're sharing it with you. Our literary lookbook is a list of 182 books releasing from January to May 2024, curated for our communities. The link to buy it is in my show notes. Today I am chatting with John Clinch about The General and Julia. This is one of those books that sounded intriguing to me when I picked it up, but I had no idea how much I would love it. John brings Ulysses S. Grant to life as well as his wife, Julia, and it's one of those books that will stay with me for a very long time. John is the author of the acclaimed novels Finn, Kings of the Earth, The Thief of Auschwitz, Belzoni, Dreams of Egypt, and Marley. A native of upstate New York, he lives with his wife in the Green Mountains of Vermont. I hope you enjoy our conversation. Hello, and welcome to Novel Conversations, a podcast about the world's greatest stories. I'm your host, Frank Lavallo, and for each episode of Novel Conversations, I talk to two readers about one book, and together, we summarize the story for you. We introduce you to the characters, we tell you what happens to them, and we read from the book along the way. So if you love hearing a good story, you're in the right place. Our ninth season is coming this fall. Tune in to hear from some of the all-time great authors, Charles Dickens, Jules Verne, F. Scott Fitzgerald, and more. Subscribe to Novel Conversations wherever you listen to podcasts. Welcome, John. How are you today? Very well, thank you. I've been nursing a cold, so if uh, if I cough at some point, I heard a woman coughing on NPR this morning. I guess it's the thing to do now. We'll see what happens. That's too funny. I think there's so much junk going around. It's impossible not to cough these days. There is. It was at, at, not to not to mess up here, but it was actually it was a book discussion, and this poor woman was you know sort of hacking away as I have been. But there you go. Enough, enough about that. <laughs> Well, first, I want to tell you congratulations, because you had both a starred Kirkus and a starred Booklist review, and then Mary Calvi picked your book as one of her book club potentials. That's so exciting. Yes, ma'am. That was, uh, yeah, that was unexpected. Well, well, actually, the two stars were not unexpected. Um, I've always been treated very kindly by the critics and very, very kindly by critics at big newspapers back when my first novel was... Uh, Finn in 2007, and that was in the days before a lot of decay had happened in uh, in the book reviewing, the book coverage business. But it's, so that's always been nice for me. The uh, CBS New York thing was a really interesting one for me, and continues to be because uh, completely out of the blue. I mean, I was I'm up against uh, Jeffrey Deaver, a thriller writer, and Mitch Album. Uh, so uh, I'm sort of I'm, I'm telling people that. Uh, I am in some way the, uh, it's not David and Goliath, it's more like Pee Wee Herman and Iron Man. Uh, <laughs> it's a pleasure to be in the bout anyway. Well, I voted for you. 
And I think she does a good job of picking a wide range of books. And usually there's at least one or two that I love that are on her list. So I feel like she and I are pretty well aligned. Well, that's a good thing. That's a good thing. Yeah. Fingers crossed. So before we dive into my questions, will you give me a quick synopsis of The General and Julia for those that haven't read it yet? The General and Julia is uh, a novel about, well, it was inspired by The Last Days of Ulysses S. Grant. And uh, it's, a, it's an historical novel that really begins early in his life and the life of his wife, Julia, when they're just courting and uh, travels through in, uh, in, in little slices. It's not, a, it's not a, a full biography by any means, and it couldn't be because it's fictional anyhow, but it, it runs in, uh, in slices all the way through until his death in 1885. It's a story of a person who, at the end, has lost almost everything. Uh, He was a great hero to the American people. He was a great hero and celebrity all around the world. He ultimately lost all of his money in a Ponzi scheme and uh, was left with a cancer-ravaged body trying to write his memoirs so that he could leave something behind for his family, for his wife and children after he died. To me, that it's a story of uh, love and heroism. After I read this book, I realized I knew very little about him. And it's such a fascinating story. He had a long storied life, even though it was cut short with the cancer. He really did live a very busy life. Yes, he did. Yes, he did. He did a lot of things. I mean, he started out as the son of a tanner. Uh, this stuff isn't really in the book, um, but he started out the son of, uh, of a tanner in Ohio. Didn't much like working in the smelly tannery, uh, served time as a farmer, and uh, made some money for a while by selling uh, firewood on the streets of St. Louis. This was not the uh, highbrow life that uh, people who we think about as getting into the presidency these days might have lived. So he was, he did a lot. He did an awful lot. And uh, it was fun to be able to go through his life and pick out those signal events from uh, the life that he led. Well, and I want to hear more about how you decided what to include. But before we talk about that, tell me how you even decided to write about him. Like, where did you become interested enough in him to decide, okay, this is my next topic for a book? I've had a history of writing uh, historical fiction. And actually, it's been historical fiction of a particular kind. It's been studies of uh, fictional characters that we didn't know anything about or didn't know much about. So my first novel, as I said, was Finn, Huckleberry Finn's father. It was set in around 1840, and it it just kind of came together with me. Is That's a time that I'm suited for some reason to writing about. I'm comfortable writing about that period. I've long been interested in Mark Twain uh, as, a, as a reader, as a child, and then as a grown-up, writing about uh, some of his characters. I've got a big relationship with the Mark Twain house in Connecticut. And Mark Twain, I knew, would be a character in this book if I decided to write about General Grant because they were friends. So that kind of set the stage for me. When I read a full biography, Chernow's biography, probably six or seven years ago of Grant, what really impressed me, what I really took away was that period at the end of his life when he was struggling against every kind of collapse and, uh, and managed to pull it out of the fire at the very end. Uh, writing, in fact, the last words of his memoir three days before he died. So that was a a real act of 
of strength and decency and heroism of a sort that we don't usually associate with him. And that, that set my imagination going. And Mark Twain helped with all of that, correct? Yeah, Twain was, was a friend. Twain was substantially younger, but they, uh, they had known each other for a long time. Something that people don't think about much is uh, that when, when, when uh, Grant was getting started waging the Civil War, Twain, whom he did not know, was uh, deserting from the uh, Confederate Army, which kind of strikes me as an interesting, an interesting uh, point of convergence and divergence there. I don't, I don't know that, that, that the two ever might have discussed that. That would have made for an interesting thing. But uh, yeah, they were good friends. Twain was, of course, a big success by that time. And Grant, who had a, an unfortunate habit, I think, not a bad habit, one that didn't serve him well, of expecting the best out of people. He, he was fooled a number of times in that way through his life, had expected the best out of a magazine editor who offered to publish his memoirs. And uh, he learned just before signing the contract that uh, the plan that he'd been offered was not nearly a fraction of uh, what he should have been getting. And Mark Twain managed to offer him a package that uh, not only got the book out there in good order, but got it read by hundreds of thousands of people and, in fact, made it the best-selling book of all time at that moment. Twain had just published Huckleberry Finn. And uh, what do you know? Ulysses Grant outsold Huck even then. <laughs> I loved that connection. Me too. It was fun to write Mark Twain uh, was, or Sam Clemens. I mean, he's really, he's really Sam Clemens in this book. Right. But it was fun to write for him after having read him for an awful lot of years now. I bet. Well, that actually leads me right into my next question. What it was like writing both him and writing Grant. I mean, these larger than life figures and you're putting words in their mouths and you're speaking for them and telling their story. What was that like? Well, it kind of goes back to uh, something that a great historical novelist, uh, E.L. Doctorow, I remember, said or wrote something along this line in pointing out the difference between history and fiction. He said something like the historian tells you what happened and the novelist tells you how it felt. And the only way that you can get to what it, what it felt like in the case of these, these two particular men and the other characters in, in the book who are known individuals, is to reflect in a, in a very sympathetic way, kind of a sympathetically imaginative way on the things that we know happened to them. And look at those things in this particular case as a, as a continuum, an accumulation of points of view and events and shifts in attitude that went in Grant's particular case from uh, childhood in Ohio to uh, death on a mountaintop in New York with a huge number of adventures in between. And when you, when you think hard enough about him and about his wife and about Mark Twain, you begin to want to get inside their heads. We know in some ways how Twain spoke. I mean, we know how he wrote at any rate as, uh, as Mark Twain. So that voice was fairly, you know, was kind of a, a fun challenge to take on. And we know what he was about relative to uh, his friend Ulysses Grant. We know, we know that he was not very fond of publishers. And we know that uh, he was fond of Grant and, and was in a big hurry 
to rescue him from what he saw as not maybe not a dishonest publisher, but a publisher who wouldn't be doing the best by him. As for Grant, to me, he spoke to me in his physical nature, which kind of informs his language and his conversation. He was not a showy person. There's a scene in the novel where he's traveling by train and he's wearing old blue pants and a and a striped gray shirt without a collar, and he has his a white wool cap that his daughter had knitted him for Christmas pulled down to his eyebrows. And he is General Ulysses Grant at this point, but he is traveling as he always traveled, which is pretty much incognito. He was smaller than his reputation. He was plainer than his reputation. And that aspect of him stuck with me and made me want to look at him not as some lofty individual, but as a person among other people. That's so interesting that you point that out, because I also thought it was such a contrast to the way you portrayed Lee and the way other people portray Lee as well, that he was showier and concerned about his appearance. Yes. And so the way the two interacted with each other and the, the gearing up for their meeting, all of that was so well done. It's one of my favorite parts of the book. Hey, thanks for that. I, I really, that, that section, which I think covers two or three chapters, is a pretty substantial chunk of the early part of the book, I think. I didn't I didn't want to tell their story straight ahead. Um, and I didn't want to have a, a narrative of the days leading up to Appomattox. I mean, that's anyone can do that. And 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 anyone everyone has done that. That's what I was just gonna say. And plenty of people have. Yeah. So I I had this idea that I could tell the story via Lee's brand new uniform. Because one thing we know is that he had a new uniform made for his well, for what would ultimately be his final meeting with Grant, however it turned out. And uh, so uh, the tailor becomes a character. And the tailor who manufactures this suit, this uniform, this elegant uniform, sends it off. We see him again only later. And uh, the, the, the nature of the uniform remains secret from Lee right up until the day of the surrender. And it's, it, it serves as kind of a totem throughout that section of the book, signifying that, you know what, it's sort of like Schrodinger's cat. Um, <laughs> there's this uniform in this, in this package, and it could go either way. It could be a uniform that he wears at surrender, or it could be a uniform that he wears at triumph. And uh, he doesn't know. He keeps it a secret from himself. And that was, a, that was, to me, a good way to tell the story in a way that it hadn't been told before. That was so well done. And it really speaks to what you were talking about before, making the reader feel versus informing them. Yeah, I wanted to get inside Lee's head there. I mean, because he must have seen what was coming. You know, the, the South was rapidly failing. But I wanted him to have that, that bit of hope left inside that, that sailcloth-wrapped package that has the uniform in it and that there's, you know, I might unwrap this and triumph. Yeah, to me, that was kind of important. I loved it. Well, how did you decide which aspects of Grant's life you were going to relay in the book? The idea was always that it would be sort of a, well, I think there are 20-some chapters. My mother-in-law used to make a thing called a seven-layer cake um, that had a layer of pound cake followed by icing, followed by pound cake, followed by icing. And this is kind of a 20-layer cake in that the uh, the cake itself, the uh, the sponge, as they call it on the British baking show, 
is uh, a long narrative, not long, but an extensive narrative of his life. And interrupting it are layers of the present day of the book, which is his uh, last 40 days on Mount McGregor in the Adirondacks in New York. So it goes back and forth in time um, from a moving sequence to a more or less fixed sequence that uh, gets interlaid between them. So I wanted to choose things for that cake that would represent and let me see him and let me show him and let me get inside his brain if I could in personal ways. There was no question that, um, and I forget where I found this bit of information, but when I learned about their courtship, uh, Ulysses and Julia, I learned the story that she had had a parakeet. She was quite young. He was young as well. She had a parakeet who died. And I say who, I guess it should have been which, that. But she had a parakeet. The parakeet died. And um, her would-be suitor, Ulysses Grant, discovered it. And in the novel, uh, he takes it upon himself to comfort her by building a little yellow coffin and uh, burying it with all proper honors and uh, reading from the Bible. And to me, that was just a moment because it, it actually happened, a moment that said, how could this young woman not fall in love with Ulysses Grant? And she did. I mean, obviously, from the very beginning, um, he was a tender-hearted individual. And it's a way to open a book about a person that people think of as a silhouette on a Civil War battlefield or the grumpy face on a $50 bill. And a way to open that story with a real personal connection. And uh, similar stories like that, um, where people felt a real connection to him and where he had real personal interactions with the world are what I wanted to use to make up the rest of that cake as it worked its way to the end. The other thing that struck me was how beloved he was. You have one scene where he's on a train, and I'm trying to remember if it's right after the war or on his way to Washington, and all of these soldiers line up to greet him and are yelling, and then all of the people that showed up for his procession when he died and for his funeral and to view the body. I mean, he was really a hero. Yes, he was. And those two scenes really reflect the reality on a, on a big scale of his relationship to the public. I'm taken to saying that uh, after his presidency, Ulysses Grant couldn't travel anywhere in the world without a parade breaking out. I mean, he was just that beloved, uh, not only in America, but all around the world. And to look at him in a closer and more personal way, there is a stretch about three chapters long in the book about a fellow named Sam Willett. Now, Sam Willett was a real person. He was a soldier in Grant's army. Uh, he did not know Grant personally, but he had served under him during the Civil War. And when Willett found out, he was a pretty old man indeed, just like Grant. He was about my age, probably, <laughs> which is kind of scary. But when he found out that Grant was ill and that he was spending a little time recuperating or at least trying to feel a little better on this mountaintop in New York State, he got a train ticket and he went and he camped out. He brought all his own gear and he camped out right outside the house and served as a, sort of a bodyguard and a, a sentry for the next month 
and uh, served as a gatekeeper, kept people away, kept curiosity seekers away, made sure that important figures who cared about him, whom he knew, could get in and see him. And this was his volunteer job uh, for, you know, 35, 40 days. He steadfastly stood by him. And uh, to me, that was the best way to tell the story of how much people love the guy. I agree. That was truly amazing. Befriended his grandkids, kind of kept them occupied. I just loved all of that. I, yeah. I, I really did like the way you chose to tell those vignettes. Instead of just going straight on, you would pick something and then weave it all around that. In fact, that was another thing, the cigars, because obviously he dies in the end from cancer, from the cigars. And you just kind of keep weaving them in like a little bit of foreshadowing, like, oh, I know this isn't going a good place for him. Well, there's cigars and cigars and cigars. Mm -hmm. yeah, and Mark Twain smokes half of them. <laughs> they're, they're, one of my favorite moments is uh, when Grant has had to leave his office, which had a he big humidor in it. Uh, Twain wonders if uh, wonders what's happened to the cigars <laughs> because he's accustomed to stealing lots of them, or at least helping himself. But yeah, it was important to me. One of one of the tricks that I shouldn't say tricks, but one of the techniques that a guy like me uses to establish time and place is something like that cigar, something like the music that gets played by a fiddler in, a, in an encampment someplace. Those things that appear sort of in the background, but are constant enough so that they give a flavor to the book. His cigar habit started, and I won't go into it in much detail, but it started because he was seen in the newspapers smoking a cigar. And uh, suddenly the American populace decided that they needed to send Ulysses Grant cigars and they needed to send them to him in enormous numbers, such that he ended up smoking 25 cigars a day on average. I mean, can you imagine 25 a day? I, I mean, you just feel sick to your stomach independent of how bad it is for you. Just all of that stuff in ingesting it. Ugh. You would think. You would think. And, <laughs> and it started out as a moment of as a kind of gratitude on his right, part. Right. You know, these people were these these people were kind to him and they loved him. And he couldn't he couldn't not smoke a cigar that they sent to him. Of course he left he 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 distributed lots of them to his to his soldiers, of course, as well, because he had far too many to smoke himself, even at twenty five a day. Right. But it's unintended consequences. And I just kept thinking that as the cigars were being woven in. And I was like, oh, this is a book full of unintended consequences. It really is. Coming up on 5-Minute News, I'm Anthony Davis. You might think it's partisan because maybe it's critical of one side or the other, but it's not. It's just the truth. And I think that's also something that's kind of unusual for Americans listening to the radio or to podcasts because the news landscape in the States has been so partisan for so many decades. So 5-Minute News is verified, truthful, independent, unbiased and essential world news daily. Another thing that fascinated me was that Grant and his family were provided for when he left the White House. All of these wealthy individuals granted them money that they could have lived on for the rest of their lives if something else had not happened in the story. And I was just amazed by that. I had no idea things like that would happen. Yeah. Um, what we need to remember is something that nobody, nobody knows, nobody really remembers, 
is that when Grant served as the president of the United States, he had to give up his commission in the army. That's right. And when you give up your commission in the army, you give up your retirement benefits. And there was there was no retirement package for the president of the United States. So when he left the presidency, he had no income. As terrible as that was, his uh, his father-in-law had predicted that and predicted uh, doom and dire consequences, which actually is what panned out. But, you know, this was the Gilded Age and uh, people, you know, financiers whose, whose names you would recognize who admired him. And once again, they, they admired him. They, they loved him. They wanted to see him lifted up. Uh, he had never played unfairly with them. He had never given uh, advantages to the wealthy. He had never been dishonest to the American people. He had never done favors. But there was this feeling that here was a man who needed to be supported decently, and people came together, wealthy people. And then when, of course, his, uh, he lost everything, and including the big amount of money that these wealthy benefactors had given him, little people came out of the woodwork. There were collections all around the nation where a town somewhere in, you know, uh, somewhere in New York State, for example, would decide they were going to raise money for Ulysses Grant. Uh, if every children, if every child gives a penny and every adult gives a dollar, uh, we can help Ulysses Grant. So it was the wealthy and the not wealthy who, during his last years, really reached out to do what they could. Go fund me in the pre-internet age. Yes, it was. Yes, it was. <laughs> I just thought, you know, you don't think about a president needing that. But you're right. He didn't have his pension, which also seems kind of crazy. Yeah. And I think that changed eventually, right? It did. It yeah. did. Yeah, it was sort of not GoFundMe. It was GoFundUlysses. <laughs> exactly. Ulysses. <laughs> right. <laughs> well, you mentioned the Mark Twain house earlier, and I know you played a role in helping it avoid foreclosure. And you obviously were interested in the Grant Cottage and brought it to life vividly in the book. So tell me a little bit more about why you're focused on these homes and what you believe the importance of historic homes are. I like that question a whole lot. Now, I had not even known that Grant Cottage existed until after I finished writing the book. I can't even recall. You know, I, know how I, I know how I found out about it. I have a very dear cousin who uh, my wife and I get together with him and his wife every summer. They live in, around Syracuse, New York, and we usually meet at some midpoint. And he had the idea that we should meet at Grant Cottage. And, I, I, and he knew I'd been writing a book about, about the subject. And it was a surprise to me. It's, and it's on a, a mountaintop, a low mountaintop. It's not really very high in, uh, in, the, in the Adirondacks. And it's a little bit tricky to get to. And it's not a huge attraction, but it should be uh, because it's, to me, it's really holy ground. You know, it's the place where it's interesting. The, uh, I have a t-shirt from Grant Cottage that says founded 1885. Now the cottage stood long before 1885, but 1885 was the year that uh, he died. So I think that's a, that's a nice touch on that, on that memorial t-shirt. But at any rate, uh, the Twain house, I've gone back to the Twain house ever since my daughter was little. A long time ago, we've been lovers of the Twain house. Now there are several Twain Memorial locations. There's the boyhood home out in Missouri, and uh, there's a home in Reading, Connecticut. But for me, the real one is in uh, Hartford, Connecticut, 
and it's where he spent the grandest years of his life. It's right next door to the house owned by Harriet Beecher Stowe. Really? And yeah. Oh, how interesting. Yeah, he, they were they were next door neighbors, and oh. uh, it was a beautiful little little suburban area when they lived there. And uh, Twain had an enormous house built. You have to remember that he was. He was Bruce Springsteen at the time. You know, he was he was en- an enormous cultural influence. And right next door, the, the author of Uncle Tom's Cabin uh, lived in a little cabin. <laughs> so between the two of them, they made an interesting pair. But the Twain house was had fallen on hard times a few years ago. They had built a big museum up behind the house, and they had had some uh, trouble with with some employees. And I got word. Now I had been there done readings and speeches a number of times. And I got word that uh, they were on hard times. I'd read it in the New York Times or somewhere. And I phoned up the uh, director, who now actually runs the uh, National Civil War Museum in uh, Gettysburg or in uh, Harrisburg, Pennsylvania. And we cooked up a plan to uh, bring in a whole bunch of writers who are friends of mine and uh, public- and use them to publicize the uh, peril that the Twain House was in. They were only a couple of weeks from uh, having to uh, cut off payroll. It was terrible. What a terrible thing. But they've, uh, we managed to give them the infusion they needed. They came back to life. The place is in great condition. They continue to open more and more rooms. And you can go all the way up to the top. And uh, in the very peak of the house, the attic space, you can see the table where Clemens and his friends played pool. Okay, now I have to visit. This sounds like a trip that I need to make. Oh, you do. I recommend it to everybody. It's magnificent. It sounds like it. I always feel like that you learn so much when you visit those places. Like I've been to Faulkner's home in Oxford yeah. and Jane Austen's, you know, in different places like that. And it's just such a wonderful glimpse into their lives and what they were doing when they were writing. You know, only a couple of, while you're traveling to Connecticut, only a little bit north of there in uh Around North Adams, Pennsylvania, or North Adams, Massachusetts, is uh, the house where Melville lived when he wrote Moby Dick. Oh, really? Yeah. Okay. Well, then, yes, I'm going to have to do a little author tour. Yeah. Good idea. And then you go a little bit to the east, and you're at uh, Edith Wharton's house. There, they were all up there. Yes, there were a bunch in Massachusetts. I agree. So, yes, I'll have to make it a a long trip, and then get all the way up to Grant's cottage somehow. There, you, there you go. <laughs> Well, and I was going to mention with respect to Grant, my daughter goes to Barnard. And so I was up there this fall and we were going on a walk in Riverside Park and we're walking along and I'm like, what is this beautiful building? And Uh we walk over there and it's his mausoleum and it was closed at the time, unfortunately. But now after I've read your book, it is on my list. The next time I visit her, we're figuring out their hours and getting over there. And there's that huge housing complex, a government housing project that's named after him as well there, which I always was like, why is this named after him? This is so random. But it's not at all. Yeah, you you don't think of, I never did, um, think of him as a denizen of New York City. I agree. No, because, but he he lived there for the, you know, the, probably the last 20 years or so of his life. He was a New Yorker. I thought that was so interesting. And now I'm dying to go in the mausoleum. And it's so pretty in the line of trees coming out of the front of it. I mean, it's a beautiful structure. Oh, it's the American Taj Mahal. Mm-hmm. I love that you called it that. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you can... You can feel the, the the reverence that people had for him there. Definitely. Well, let's quickly talk about your stunning cover. Do you love it? Oh, oh, good Lord, I love that cover. I mean, really. Have you seen or do you have the uh, the final printed version? 
No, but I clearly need to get it. I have the galley. You need to get it because the, uh, well, we can talk about what it looks like, although we'll, I'm sure you'll have a picture on your on your podcast. But uh, it's the background is handwritten uh, letter, like as if it were a letter from, from Grant to Julia. Overlaid on that are, uh, well, actually what it is, it's leaves and flowers, but it's actually taken from a photograph of old Victorian wallpaper. Gee, I have to give so much credit to the cover designer uh, because he, he brought together the idea of letters home from somewhere, and he brought alongside that the idea of home um, between the wallpaper and the, and the handwritten letters. And uh, in the hardcover, the, uh, the, the, the leaves that you see are all embossed and it's just oh, it's a gorgeous piece of work. When when they showed that book to me, when they when they you know when you, when you're when you've written a book, and as long as you have a good relationship with people, you get to comment on uh, how the cover's coming along and so forth. And this one just knocked me out. That's exactly what I thought when I first got an email about it and saw the cover. I was like, I don't even care what this book's about. I need to read it. It's so pretty. But then obviously it was just as good inside as it is outside. Oh, thanks. Wait, to, to, to me, it seems like a book that if you pick it up in a bookstore, you will not want to go home without it. Absolutely. Well, I'm going to get a hold of a physical final copy. Before we wrap up, John, what have you read recently that you really liked? Ah, let me see. The one book that I always recommend is uh, by Charles Frazier. You know Charles Frazier as the author of uh, Cold Mountain and other books. A book that is his smallest book. Uh, it's called Nightwoods, and it's really a literary uh, thriller. And it's, it's very much different in weight and impact and so forth from his other novels. But by God, it's a work of uh, enormous beauty. And uh, I recommend uh, Nightwoods everywhere I go. The other book that I would recommend is, uh, and I one of the few novels Certainly the only one I can think of in the last few years that I read right through and then turned back to page one and read it again is Nightmare Alley. I don't know if you, if you saw the uh, Guillermo del Toro movie based on Nightmare Alley. Uh, the, uh, the author is William Lindsay Gresham. And it was, uh, it's a dark noir kind of a thriller. And it's set in the world of, uh, of carnivals. And uh, it's about a, a young man who decides that he can learn to be a mind-reading artist and gets in loads of trouble. Um, it's a it's a beautifully written book. It's dark and dangerous, and uh, I recommend Nightmare Alley with all enthusiasm. I'm not familiar with either one of those, but I'm going to add them to my list, particularly the Charles Fraser one. That sounds really good. Oh, it's great! It's great. Good. And they both start with the word night. Isn't that weird? That is weird. Yeah. Night woods, nightmare alley. There you go. You can set a trend. Working on those night moves. <laughs> I also recommend uh, Bob Seeger. So there you go. There you go. Well, John, thank you so much for taking the time to chat with me. And I cannot wait for everyone to listen to our interview and then also to go out and read The General and Julia. Well, thank you so much. Thanks for helping get the word out. Uh, I dearly love this book and uh, it's been fun to talk with you about it. I thought it was very fun as well. Great. Thank you. Hi there. I'm Heather Drago. And I'm Sarah Saunders. 
We host the podcast, That's a Hard No, about saying no and setting boundaries. So you can become that true and empowered you that this world needs. Saying no isn't just okay. It's the key to living an authentic, fulfilling life. I'm a licensed professional clinical counselor. So while this podcast is in no way a replacement for one-on-one therapy, I suppose I know what I'm talking about. I'd say so. We talk about learning to say no and set healthy boundaries and how it impacts mental health, physical health, relationships, parenthood, and more. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and visit our website, hardnopodcast.com. We're here to help you find your no and say it unapologetically. That's a hard no. I'm a grown-up. Me too. Yep, me too. But you know, these days, being a grown-up can really suck. Luckily, we're grown-ups who grew up in the coolest generation. We had video arcades. And also some of the best TV and movies ever made. We lived the origin of awesome consumer electronics. The list goes on and on. Yep, Generation X. Exactly. And we're Gen X Grown-Up. Every week, the Gen X Grown-Up podcast explores media, tech, toys, games, and more from both yesterday and today. Through the eyes of Generation Xers who absolutely love that stuff. You can find us on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Or find us on our website, genxgrownup.com. All right, you think that was good enough? I I hope so, man. I'm tired. (laughs) Who listens to a promo on a podcast and then goes and listens to a different podcast? I've never done it. Thank you so much for listening to my podcast. I would love to connect with you on Instagram or Facebook, where you can find me at Thoughts From a Page. If you enjoy the show, please consider joining my Patreon group to access bonus content and support the podcast. If you have a moment to rate the show or subscribe to it wherever you listen to your podcasts, I would really appreciate it. It makes a big difference. And please tell all of your friends about Thoughts From a Page. Word of mouth does wonders to help the show grow. The book discussed in this episode can be purchased at my bookshop storefront, and the link is in the show notes. I hope you'll tune in next time. Hi, I'm Emma. And I'm Joe. And And we're we're the the Professional Professional Book Book Nerds. Nerds. Two Mondays a month, we interview authors and talk about their upcoming books, what drives them, and their go-to order at the cafe. On Thursdays, we share recommendations and dive into topics readers face, like how do I actually read the books on my to-be-read list? You can find the Professional Book Nerds podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Want to learn more about us? Our website is professionalbooknerds.com, and you can find us on Instagram, Twitter, and TikTok at ProBookNerds. We hope you'll come and listen, and as always, happy happy reading. reading!